Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So welcome again to another Invested Investor podcast. Today we have Jonathan Milner, who I've known for about seven or eight years, a stellar example of an entrepreneur and angel investor. And we're going to talk for his life and what he's learned over the last 15 or 20 years of being an angel. So first of all, Jonathan, welcome. And can you just describe some of your background, what led you into being an entrepreneur? Yes, of course. I'm delighted to be here. I suppose my greatest inspiration was actually my father. So my father actually was an engineer by background and a successful engineer as well. But at school, he was given a report which said he would never be a leader of men. And he actually went on to lead 5,000 people in John Brown Engineering, in Daniels Hamilton, in the Cotswolds, and then later on had his own light engineering company down in Portsmouth. And so I actually moved down to Portsmouth with my family for him to start his light engineering company. So my start in life was actually during A-levels when I got really interested in biology and I had an incredible biology teacher, very inspirational. So I decided that I was going to do some sort of biology, whether it's medicine or biology at university, and ended up applying for applied biology at Bath University from 1984 to 1988. And that was a fabulous sandwich course where you went away on placement and worked somewhere for six months and then came back to the university to study for six months it was a fabulous... So where did you go? Where, where were you on placement? My first placement was looking at bark beetles in the Welsh forests and doing biological control of bark beetles. Fabulous experience for an 18-year-old to be out there chopping down trees and searching for bark beetles. So that was my first placement. And then I went to the Leicester Biocentre where I got a passion for genetics and yeast genetics And that was the hot subject at the time. And then I ended up at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, again doing yeast genetics. And that was my passion at that point. And I thought I was going to follow that passion. So I got accepted for a place at Dundee University to do my PhD. In what subject? In molecular biology of yeast genetics. What's yeast genetics? Yeast genetics. Oh, yeast. So so yeast genetics is fascinating because the whole way that we've managed to work out how human cells replicate and divide was through looking at yeast. And the pioneer there was a Nobel Prize winner, of course, Paul Nurse. And he was my hero at the time. He was making really incredible, groundbreaking discoveries that led to all the cell cycle genes and everything we know about the cell cycle in the human homologues of these genes that were found subsequently. Right. So it seems a bit bizarre thinking about yeast genetics as how can that help? And it was absolutely fundamental in our current understanding of how human cells go wrong in health and disease. Yep. So I was all ready to go to Dundee, but unfortunately my father became very ill. He contracted lung cancer and I didn't want to move so far away. Um, he was living at Portsmouth at that time. So I wanted to stay nearer. So I accepted a 
position, not in yeast genetics, but I found one at uh, Leicester University doing molecular biology on a bacterium. This was your PhD? This is my PhD, PhD, yes, yes, yes. So I had a wonderful time in Leicester doing this work on bacterial genes, actually, pathology genes. And then central to the story, which is all coming together of how I ended up being an entrepreneur and angel investor and CEO of Abcam, etc., is the fact that at Leicester I met my wife, Rosie, And she was from Greece and she was going to go back to Greece. And I said, well, why don't you stay here? I'll find some work here. You can find some work here. Um, She's an artist and she wanted to do an art gallery management position. So she wanted to find one of those in England somewhere. So we both moved to Bath and I took a postdoc position at Bath doing antibody engineering. And that was the pioneering time. This was 92, 93. This was 92, 93. And it was just at the time when CAT, uh, Cambridge Antibody Technology, was getting going. So I got to know all the guys from CAT. So I spent a bit of time up in Cambridge meeting them. Great guys. John McCafferty, Kevin Johnson, David Chiswell. Fabulous time. So that was my first sort of insight into antibody engineering. And I was already, after that postdoc in Bath, I was already to then move on to the next phase of my career, which I'd got my heart set on joining Cambridge Antibody Technology. Yeah. So I came out for my dream job, yeah. if you like. Yes. <laughs> Had the interview for that. Um, failed spectacularly. <laughs> Impossible to believe at this point in time. Failed spectacularly to get into Cambridge Antibody Technology. And actually, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. So then I thought, well, this is a bit of a shame because Rosie at that point had finally found a job uh, managing a gallery in Cambridge Contemporary Art. And so I thought, well, I'd better get a job. And I was flipping through all the job ads and I saw this one come up at the university in Professor Tony this lab. Right. And I thought, well, there's not a hope in hell that I'm going to be able to go to this top, top lab with this incredible scientist who's making huge strides in oncology and cancer research. But I thought I'd chance it. (laughs) So I turned up for the interview and um, just met Tony. And for some reason, we just gelled. Mm. And we just got on like a house on fire. So it was, um, you've got the job. And then I said, oh, thank you. And it was only afterwards when I said to him, I said, did you actually read my CV? And he said, oh, no, I didn't need to read your CV. You were just... Really character. And, Purely and, character. And I thought you'd be good for the lab. So, that's, <laughs> so I just employed you for that. Yeah. So then there I was in Cambridge and not being from Cambridge myself. Yeah. And, you know, it it yeah. was the most incredible experience, the most incredible three years of my life in the top lab, working with the top people, making groundbreaking discoveries. My project was on breast cancer research. We were well-funded. It was mentally hugely stimulating that was an absolutely incredible experience. But of course, then a major change happens. You go from a top laboratory into being a lowly, in inverted commas, in terms of income and stress, I suspect, entrepreneur. How did that happen? Yeah, so the point came when I was thinking very carefully about what was my next step in the career. And I realised that I probably wasn't going to be like Tony. I wasn't ever going to be a top academic, and I certainly wasn't going to win a Nobel Prize. And I'd always been quite entrepreneurial, inspired by my father. So I started to think about going into business and how I could do that. And then one day, I was working in the lab alongside a young medical 
scientist called Luke Hughes-Davis. He's an oncologist, actually, top, top oncologist in Cambridge now. And Luke just said to me, he said, oh, I can't stand these antibodies. They're really rubbish. You know what, Johnny, we ought to make a company. Why don't we start a company making antibodies? It would have been one of those throwaway lines, yeah. which never went anywhere. Right. But it started me thinking, and it started me on this sort of what I would call an entrepreneurial seizure. And I couldn't get this out of my mind. You're right. <laughs> and so I started to talk to Luke about it. So we'd go for coffee together. We'd say, are we really serious about this? How are we going to make the antibodies then? And Luke would say, don't worry, my uncle, he's a sheep farmer in Wales and we're going to make the antibodies in the sheep in Wales. And then we're going to be able to harvest the antibodies from the blood. And then we, my uncle can sell the sheep in the market so it's all quite environmentally friendly, no wastage or anything like this. <laughs> so, and naively, I thought this was the answer. This is fantastic. And I think, to be honest with you, the idea wouldn't have gone much further had it not been for a bit of serendipity. Yes, and a, luck, a large amount of serendipity. A large think, amount of serendipity. And this is where the story comes full circle, back to Rosie. Mm. Because Rosie, as I told you, was working in the art gallery, Cambridge yes. Contemporary Art. And she was working alongside Ros Cleveley. Mm. And one year, they decided to have a Christmas dinner and they couldn't find anywhere in December. So it was actually in January. So they were having a Christmas dinner in January and it was all the hangers-on and partners, boyfriends, yes, partners, husband. husbands, etc. Yeah, yeah. with Ros and Rosie and others at this Christmas dinner in one of the colleges. And I happened to be sitting next to David. And David, the very inquisitive person hugely chatty very extrovert so he was saying what are you doing with you know what are you going to do with your career and I started to say to him well I've come to this point I've had a fantastic time in Tony's lab and I'm really thinking of starting a business and David was incredible instead of sort of dismissing it or anything like that he said oh well tell me about this so I, I started to tell him about well, it's antibodies, and uh, these are used in all sorts of research and in diagnostics, and in, increasingly, you know, there was going to be therapeutics as well coming out. And he started to get really interested in this story. So he said, well, come and see me next Saturday, and come to my office, and we'll have a chat about, you know, what your So when is this, is. early 97, 98? So this was 1998, yeah. January 1998. I remember clearly... Turning, Going to his office at the top of his house. Well, it was actually on Castle Hill in analysis. Yes. So David was still running and owning yes. analysis. And I hadn't realised how well-known and successful already David was, which right. was probably a good thing, because I think I would have been a bit nervous. Yes. <laughs> he put me at ease. Yes. We went to his office and David said, well, tell me your idea. So I said, well, I've got this friend and he's got an uncle in Wales and we're going to make the sheep and this and that. And I could see David starting to <laughs> lose interest at this point. Because <laughs> he's a technical background, but not a life sciences background, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then David said to me, so how much does it cost to make one of these units of antibody? And I said to him, it's about three to five pounds for a unit of antibody. And then he said, what do you sell these for? And I said, they sell for about 150 200 pounds and at that point he, <laughs> he got interested <laughs> yes. 
Of course, I hadn't explained to him that actually it's quite risky making antibodies and most of the ones you make are not going to be popular to sell. So it's actually quite difficult. You need to make a lot of different types of antibodies before you hit on the ones that are actually going to to sell. But that was part of the business model that would come out later with David's coaching. Yes, excellent. But there's a great story that floats around about you in an ice bucket. So can we share that with the listeners? Absolutely. So coming back to David, David was incredibly generous with his time and mentored me through transitioning from a pure academic where you only have one thing to concentrate on in the lab, which is to do your experiment. And it's, it's actually, you know, very rewarding and fulfilling, but your mind is just purely on one thing. And so it's quite relaxing. You almost get in the Zen zone when you're doing experiments. And I realized very early on, that being a, an entrepreneur and trying to get a business off the ground, your mind has to flip really quickly between you know, interviewing, between doing the cash flow, between trying to get customers, between making sure the investors are happy, that you're raising money. Mm. All of these things was incredibly stressful for me. And David managed to coach me through these. Then the ice bucket story really comes in because there were very, very dark times when I was really, really struggling with everything. And it was all becoming too You'd much. You'd had some me. finance at this point, had you? So at this point, David had put some money in and yes. um, my wife allowed me to, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, actually, even more generous. She said that we could remortgage our newly bought house in Mawson Road. And I trotted into David's office clutching a cheque for £11,000. David looked at it and said, that's not going to be enough. <laughs> so David put in £40,000. And which allowed you to stop working for the university then? That's right. Yeah. At that point, we were getting into the summer and my contract was ending during the summer months. So okay. Tony right. allowed me very generously to stay on. And he knew that I was working in my spare time on yes. the business with David. And then Tony joined us in the business as well as a director very, very early on. They didn't leave his role though in the university, did they? Oh, no, no, no. no, no. no Tony's no, very no, much. He's still there, isn't he? Still there, yeah. 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 So you raised a bit of money, but you said you were getting desperate. So you, you wandered around Cambridge with an ice bucket with an antibody in, I believe. Well, that's right. So we'd raised this money. We were burning that very fast. I, foolishly, I spent it too quickly and I learned a lesson. I bought a load of stock not calculating that it would be difficult to sell. Right. <laughs> it's the first lesson. It was a really Fundamental hard lesson. lesson there, yes. Fundamental lesson. Yes. So I was stuck with this stock that I couldn't sell and absolutely desperate to get money through the door. Right. So we were within two weeks of going bankrupt. So in desperation, I just thought, well, I've got to get out there. So I grabbed a load of antibodies, put them into an ice bucket, <laughs> and I just went to all the labs that I knew and all the people I knew, and I just literally blagged we're my way in. We're collecting £10 and, Well, I was just knocking on the door saying, would you like to buy these antibodies? And they didn't want to buy these antibodies, <laughs> but it didn't matter. It absolutely didn't matter, and it absolutely transformed the company. Without me having done this, Abcam would have gone nowhere. The reason for that is because they looked in the ice bucket and they said, well, I don't want that antibody and I don't want that antibody. And bear in mind, there's thousands and thousands of different products. So trying to predict the antibody you want is very difficult. And then they said, but I'm having trouble making antibodies. Can you make me this antibody? So I just said, yes. <laughs> so I said, OK, I'll make you the antibody. 
And so I started a contract business, bringing in contract work, where I'd manage the manufacture of these antibodies, outsource the manufacturing to a manufacturer that's much better than the So you swapped to a service model rather than a product model. So the service model came in, and the service model was the foundation for the cash flow, which got Abcam going, because otherwise it wouldn't have survived. To be pointed out to listeners, this business is now worth a couple of billion, the market cap. I think last time it was sort of 2.3 billion. Pounds market pounds cap. Market yeah, so cap. we're talking yeah. here from bankruptcy. Yeah. It's the longest journey. We're talking 20 years or 19 years. Well, it's 20 years now, yeah. Yeah, this, yes, so you must yes. be having your 20th anniversary this we're year. We're having right? the 20th anniversary this year. I know that Sir Michael Marshall was an early investor and a huge supporter of you over the years. Can you tell me about the first funding round? We got us some cash flow in from the service business. Yeah. But we still needed to raise the money to finance the web platform, employ people, what have you. And so David introduced me to his network within Cambridge. And that was really, really important because without those introductions, I wouldn't have been able to get the finance in. So this was the network that we're all familiar with in Cambridge, Herman Hauser, Peter Dorr, Stephen Thomas, etc. All David's friends and fellow angel investors. And they invested in Abcam very early on. How much did they put in that round? Do you remember? That round was about 200k. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the total amount of money we took was no more than 450k. Before you floated? Before we floated, yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. And what was the market capitalization on the day of float? It was just over 50 million. <laughs> That's it's not a bad return. return. Yeah. When did you float? So that was 2005, October the 3rd, 2005 on the A market. Yeah, so that's effectively seven and a bit years from 98 when you formed the company. That's correct. So this is actually, this is a really great story, isn't it? Because you basically relied on customer money rather than equity to build this business, didn't you? That's By right. finding good product market fit, finding customers, good gross margin by the sound of it, etc. Okay, talk us through a bit of the stages. So you've raised a couple of hundred thousand or 150,000 from these, this group. You start employing people there, don't you, I should think? Yes. So it was essential that we start to employ, especially web developers, but we could only afford one web developer. And he came on board. He was, I think, our second employee, actually, Mike Shaw. Mike was absolutely terrific, apart from the fact that just before we were due to launch the website, he hadn't actually done anything. So, <laughs> what had he done? <laughs> He'd done a lot of planning. <laughs> so I remember distinctly saying to him, well, we've got to launch because we've told everybody we're going to launch. And it was October. And we said, October the 5th, we're going to be launching this website. The night before, there was nothing. So I went round to Mike's house and I said, Mike, we're going to sit here all night long. I'm going to feed you coffee and pizza. And we're going to do this website together. <laughs> So we worked all night long. Uh, we released the website in the morning and it worked. It was terrific. Absolutely terrific. And this is an earlyish website as well, because this is around about 2000. Now, well, this was it? a very, very early website. Yeah. And the key to it was a little tiny search engine, which in comparison to search engines these days is absolutely hopeless. But then it was a state-of-the-art search engine called Muscat. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. John Snyder. John Snyder's Muscat. Uh, so John licensed his Muscat and yes. we put this search engine on the website. And that's what really got the company going because people were coming to our website to search for antibodies. So this little search engine built into the website, despite being really clunky today's standards, was better than anything out there at the time. Right. So we were getting, suddenly we were getting thousands and thousands of hits for researchers wanting to find their antibody. 
And then it occurred to us that this is a pretty neat trick here. We're getting all of these hits and passing all these potential customers, researchers, through to all the companies that we were listing. We were listing three or 400 oh, companies. Oh, you are reselling other people's products? We weren't reselling. Oh, you no. Were, okay. No, we weren't reselling. We were just a, a miniature Google Oh, within right. passing across absolutely leads to it was customers. just a miniature google because google wasn't any good you would you don't yeah. need it anymore because yeah. google wasn't any good yeah, in yeah. those days yeah. and search engines were a bit rubbish you got irrelevant results we were just delivering very specific results and charging for those no you weren't even charging for no. it so no. what's the monetization so, so that was the funny thing so we were getting a lot of criticism for well this is a crazy business model what are you doing? You're not charging. You're not getting any money. Yeah, yeah. But we had a trick up our sleeve, and that was that we had information. We had information about which antibodies these researchers wanted. Mm. So it was a really simple task then to say, well, we know what the top 10 antibodies are. We know what the top 20, we know what the top 50 are. All we need to do is systematically start to put these into our catalogue. And next time somebody searches on these, instead of going through to the competitors... We offer them our own product. Yeah. So we started to build up this catalogue of own antibodies. And this took how long? This took several months to build up enough data to, to monetize it, did it? Or? it? It only took up it took a few months to get enough data to know which antibodies yes, to, to put into the catalogue. Yeah. And then it was the hard work of actually going out there, either making the antibodies or sourcing them, finding the right supplier for them to actually put them onto our website with the... And quality control. And, and so quality you, so control. So you set up a manufacturing arm of antibodies or did you subcontract the manufacturing? There's two parts to making an antibody. The one is the first part where you, you have to immunise your host animal and then take the spleen or the blood and make the antibodies from that. Yeah. And that is subcontracted out. And then the second part of that is to actually do the information part which is the data surrounding the antibody for what it can be used for and that actually turned out to be the most valuable part of the product right. it wasn't the physical product which is the antibody that sits in the in the tube if you yes. like it was actually the data surrounding the antibody and david and i realized this neat trick pretty quickly so we started to say well how can we not only add products but add data onto the products right. in the best possible way and you know, the cheapest possible way. And it occurred to us that we should allow reviews, which are standard now. Yeah, so we were one, of the, we were one yeah. of the first companies yeah. to actually allow customers to review the products and put stars on there, you know, one star or five stars. And the criticism we got for that was, you know, how tacky, how could you do that? It's not books. These are very serious scientific products. Of course, now every single scientific product will have customer reviews on it. Yes. It's standard. Yes. Everything does. But we were the pioneers there. And that got us information about the products. The products became better and better over time as people knew how to use them based on these customer reviews. Oh, that's excellent. And you managed to maintain the gross margin that you'd sold to David on day one? We did, yes, we did. We did. So a very profitable business. Very profitable business. So we've got to the point where we've got product market fit. So how many people are you at this point? When you've got the website launched a few months later? We've, We've got about 10 people at this point. Yes. We were in the plant biochemistry annex in a room... Not much bigger than this, which is what? Four by four, four by three metres. <laughs> four by three metres. Most of them were working at home, thankfully. So we had about four. And then at that point, we knew that we had to move. And then we went to the Cambridge Science Park. So we found a small unit on the Cambridge Science Park right. and have stayed there moving from unit to unit ever since. 
Yeah. Until next year, when we're going to be moving, of course, to the Cambridge Biomedical Campus. Next to Addenbrooke. Next yeah. to Addenbrooke. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So you've got 10 people. And how many people did you have at Float? At Float, we must have been up at around 75 people at Float. And now we're just over 1,000. And now you, to be humorous and intelligent person, part of what you've done to grow the business is making sure the culture's right. Can we just talk about how you generate that culture, whether you knew what culture meant to start with, perhaps, how you generated and how you maintained it? I had no idea about culture in terms of how important it is. And it's only in retrospect I realise how essential it is for an organisation. The one thing that I truly believe is that the individual is actually bigger than the organisation. And if you start to really care and nurture your employees and, and care about your employees, then you get the best from them, actually. Mm. And if you concentrate on the individual rather than saying, well, you work for this company and you've got to do this or you've got to do that, if you make sure the individual's needs are actually catered for, the reward you get back in the company is absolutely huge. And I'm so proud of the one thing that keeps coming out again and again in Abcam's culture is the word friendly. And when you go into Abcam, I hope you'll see that everybody is cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful, and most of all, they're all supporting each other to become successful. Right. They want other people to be successful because that's how I built the company. I was very interested in developing my management team, in developing people in their roles, making them successful in their roles. And that could mean just some people just wanted to come to work and you know, pipette things into tubes and go home. And that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And if they're happy and successful and cheerful yeah, yeah. in that role, mm. that's perfectly fine. Mm. Other people wanted to progress through the company and, you know, go rise up through the ranks and become executives. And again, that's great and supporting them in that. But it's a quid pro quo and they had to equally support the others around them. Mm. And that paid dividends because as a CEO, I found that I couldn't be successful without everybody around me really wanting to help me become successful. And that was key because having come from a background where I was an academic and then I had to transition my role yeah. from entrepreneur, early stage company to public listed company to high growth company to what it is you know, mm. today, I had to reinvent myself a number of times. And if I hadn't had the support of people around me, such as Jim Warwick, David Cleveley, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Yes, you've done amazing there. You've had to learn how to learn and pass on this culture without really necessarily having had any experience of doing it. That's absolutely correct. I hadn't been to business school. I had no idea. I'd never, ever had people reporting to me. Yeah. I hate to say, you know, you're managing people. Nobody wants to be managed, but you know, working as a team and having people around me like that. I had no concept of that or no idea actually how to do it. I had no idea how to mm. hire or fire. Mm. I had no idea about HR, no idea about culture, about pay, absolutely nothing. You're obviously a very, a very good listener. So before we move on to your angel investing, which you turned into another career, can we just talk about some of the things that you learned painfully during the journey on Abcam? Obviously, people have to leave the business. Some have to leave because they're not fitting in, etc. Maybe did you ever run out of cash again, etc.? Yes, I mean, there was a couple more occasions when we were nearly out of cash and we just about managed to scrape through again and get us to profitability. But I think you know, the lesson that I learned there was that having financial discipline is so important and crucial to that was getting 
Eddie Powell on board as our finance director very early on in the company. So early on that we couldn't actually afford to pay poor Eddie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we paid him in shares, actually. <laughs> well, no, we had to contract him out to other companies. <laughs> so when was this? How many people were you? Just 10 or so? Uh, I think when Eddie joined, we must have been about 15, very early on. We were 15 people at that right. point. In the very, so you very sold him all as a finance director. So we hired him out because we couldn't afford to pay him. And then when we could afford to pay him, we got him back in full time. And Eddie brought that financial discipline to the company that was absolutely essential because with me, being very entrepreneurial and just wanting to spend money all the time, the company wouldn't mm. have yeah, lasted yeah. very long. So, yes. so Eddie was essential in the transitioning of the company to a profitable company. Good. So hiring and firing. I mean, all entrepreneurs need to learn that. It can be a very painful process. Can you give us some advice about that? I can indeed, because very early on, I found it incredibly difficult to... I, it wasn't so much the hiring. Because I was so entrepreneurial, I could actually attract top people. And having Eddie on board very early on, people were intrigued. How can this little company attract such a wonderful finance director out of Marconi uh, to come and work in this little company? So I actually had no problem attracting good people. It was the firing of people that was the real difficulty. And the lesson that I actually learned there was that I spent too long allowing the wrong people in the wrong positions to carry on within the company to the point where when it really got so bad that I had to say, I'm sorry, this is not working out. I'm going to have to let you go. One, it was a real shock for the people you have to let go. Mm. And two, I was terrified what it would look like to all the people left in the company. I was being horrible. I was going to fire them next. This is what was going through my mind. The reaction I had was totally the opposite. It was Jonathan, why didn't you do this earlier? Why didn't you do this six months ago? You know, why did it have to go on so long? And that was an absolute you know, eye-opener for me. And then the other thing that I learned and the mistake that I made was actually to make the whole firing process much easier, mm. you have to give timely and honest feedback mm. to regular appraisals and not just regular appraisals, just chats, just chats about this is going right, this is going wrong. And so when you come to actually make that regretful decision, the person would go, well, actually, do you know what? You're absolutely right. (laughs) I can't complain. You're right. I haven't done this. I haven't done that. And you've been telling me that for the last six months. And it makes the whole process much, much easier. So those are the two lessons I learned. Yeah, that's so important. Mm. Thank you for listening to part one of Jonathan's Invested Investor podcast. We've been lucky enough to hear how he founded and has helped build the world-leading life science innovator Abcam. Starting off with a bucket full of antibodies to sell, he has helped transform the company into a £2.5 billion multinational success. Be sure to listen to part two, which follows Jonathan into his current passion, angel investing. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content.